Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Accepting God's Acceptance, The Certainty of God's Love, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 27, 2008. A few years ago, my wife and I took a break from our Presbyterian Church to worship at historic Glide Memorial United Methodist Church in San Francisco. Founded in 1929 at the corner of Ellis and Taylor Streets in the C.D. Tenderloin District, Glide stepped into the national limelight in 1963 when it hired the young Afro-American firebrand Cecil Williams as its pastor. Across the last 45 years, Williams has boldly proclaimed God's unconditional acceptance to a spectacle of radical and radically disenfranchised groups, including a hookers convention, the American Indian movement, the Black Panthers, and, of course, the city's considerable gay community. In 1964, Williams founded the Council on Religion and Homosexuality, five long years before the 1969 Stonewall riots between gays and police in New York City that some people suggest mark the beginning of the gay rights movement. I especially loved one song that the Glide Ensemble sang that morning, the refrain of which captures Paul's words from Romans 8 for this week, God will take care of you. That Sunday at Glide also coincided with San Francisco's Gay Pride Weekend. As my wife and I stood among the thousands of people along Market Street and watched the three-hour extravaganza, I thought how far I was from the little town in Little Church in North Carolina where I grew up. And I don't mean merely in miles. It's hard to relate to something so far removed from your personal experience. But it's not hard to relate to experiences of exclusion, indifference, disenfranchisement, hate, humiliation, and separation. It's natural to long to believe that God is really and truly for you, and that in the words of the hymn that morning, that he will take care of you. Most people have experienced some sense of separation from God whether by others or even by oneself. The genius of Glide Memorial Church has been to stand in the swirling vortex of almost every and any form of human pain, violence, despair, and hopelessness that we might imagine. Homelessness, unemployment, HIV AIDS, violence, psychiatric disorders, racism, drug abuse, and the like, and standing in that vortex to declare without equivocation, God is for you. Their free health clinic, a meal program that serves a million free meals a year, job training, and 50 other ministries underscore their commitment to that pastoral proclamation, God is for you, and nothing can separate you from God's love. The epistle for this week contains Paul's famously debated comments about God's election, foreknowledge, 
calling and predestination. But instead of theological speculation about who is excluded by these mysteries, Paul's focus is pastoral consolation about who is included in God's love. His message is uncompromising. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8.39 I count at least 20 demons that threaten to undo us that Paul mentions. Suffering, weakness, frustration, bondage to decay, ignorance, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, death, the sword, danger, life, angels, demons, powers, the present, the future, heights, depths, and, as if Paul might have overlooked some tragedy, he includes, quote, anything else in all of creation. None of these can separate you from God's love. We can make our own personal lists, too. Parents, children, your boss, employees, colleagues, foolish choices, persistent sins, public failure, private disappointments, anxieties, school, a bad business deal, and on and on. Paul is adamant and uncompromising. Nothing can separate you from God's love. When you consider Paul's own Christian journey, you realize that his unequivocal language is not pious cliché or mere metaphor, but a deeply held conviction born of his personal experience. A few days after his conversion, God promised that he would suffer much for his kingdom and that prison and hardship awaited him in every city. And so it did. Brutal treatment, harassment, and strong opposition were his regular fare. In the book of Acts, Luke records at least eight murder attempts on Paul's life. Paul compared himself in the first apostles to sheep headed to a slaughter. People in last place, public spectacles, dishonored fools, vagrants who were hungry, thirsty, homeless, and in rags. And in those memorable words, the scum of all the earth, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 8 to 13. Is anyone weak without my being weak, Paul asked. And of course, ultimately, he was martyred in Rome. And through all of this, he insisted, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. When you feel alienated, separated, and estranged by others, or maybe by the tapes playing in your head, when you sense that everyone and everything is against you, it's easy to forget Paul's declaration that God is unequivocally for you. But reality can be different than appearances. In the Gospels for this week, Jesus compares his kingdom to a tiny mustard seed, something insignificant rather than extravagant, fragile and not mighty, unlikely rather than obvious. His kingdom can also be imperceptible like yeast leavening a bunch of dough. His kingdom is like a fishnet containing the good and the bad together, 
or a field of wheat infested with weeds. But despite these and other outward obscurities, the ultimate reality of his kingdom is that God's love is unconditional and inseparable. In the Old Testament passage this week, King David's son Solomon had a dream that is the stuff of childhood fantasies. God invited him to ask for anything he wished. I can easily imagine wishing to change any number of my outward circumstances. I'm sure that the many people in San Francisco's Tenderloin District might feel the same. But Solomon asked for a discerning heart. Authentic Christian discernment looks beyond personal failures, social stigmas, and cultural conventions to affirm that despite your sense of alienation, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ. A discerning heart believes that God is unconditionally for you and in so believing accepts God's acceptance. For books this week, I review Rick Bragg, the Prince of Frogtown, New York, not 2008. This is actually a guest review by Tom Ford, a Lutheran pastor in California. Thanks to Luke, we're familiar with the prodigal son. Thanks to Rick Bragg, in this third family memoir called The Prince of Frogtown, we meet the prodigal father that is, Rick Bragg's violent alcoholic father, Charlie, who caused Bragg and his family such unimaginable trauma and anguish in his early years that they had written him off as unredeemed and unredeemable. Bragg's deep pain festered for a lifetime when at age 45 it had to be exercised. It helped Bragg best-selling author of the book All Over But the Shouting, 1997, and Ava's Man, 2001, controversial former New York Times feature writer, Pulitzer Prize winner in 1996, and now teacher of writing at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, it helped that he had the good fortune to marry for the second time after being single for 20 years. Diane, or the woman as she's known in the book, has three sons. The youngest one, Jake, opens Bragg's eyes to what it means to be a little boy. For Jake, for Bragg, but most importantly, for Bragg's written-off father, Charlie. Bragg is forced to discover his real father, and not merely the devilish ghost that haunts his childhood years and subsequent memories. He looks at all the forces that sculpted and shaped him from boyhood, knowing that merely writing him off would also erase much of his own self and would pull him his own self unredeemed down to his own grave. So Bragg searches for his father by talking to all the cotton mill town folk relatives and Korean war buddies in Frogtown, that part of Jacksonville, Alabama, where the fighting, hard-drinking, hell-raising Charlie Bragg had lived. What Rick Bragg finds 
how he tells about it and what it does to him and Jake and their relationship is on a par with anything Faulkner, Wilder, Hemingway, or Harper Lee ever wrote. All people on the journey with Jesus ought to read this book real soon. If you delay, delay only to read its predecessors all over but the shoutin' about Bragg's mother and Ava's man about his grandfather. Rick Bragg, The Prince of Frogtown, a review by Lutheran pastor Tom Ford. For film this week, I review I'm Not There, 2007. Just who is Robert Allen Zimmerman, born in 1941? We know him as Bob Dylan, a name he assumed in 1962, and everyone knows his music when they hear it. But knowing the man has remained a chaotic quest. This unusual film combines clever artistic sophistication with musical nostalgia, but it fails badly to shed any light on whoever the so-called real Bob Dylan was. Perhaps that was not the film's purpose, or perhaps it was, its purpose was to present Dylan's personality as badly fragmented. Six different actors play six different Bob Dylans, including Kate Blanchett, who was nominated for an Oscar for her role. But we're never told that any of the characters is Bob Dylan, so if you don't know this in advance, you'll be lost. The six characters have different names and different stories that aren't related, but instead jump back and forth in a non-linear fashion. All six of the Dylans make him sound like a cult-like philosopher, too, who only spoke in mysterious Zen-like cones. Some of what they portray follows Dylan's real life, like his conversion to Christianity, or his periods of obscurity. But other parts are entirely fictional, Becoming a Movie Star, for example. The tagline says that this film was, quote, inspired by the music in many lives of Bob Dylan, end quote. But in the end, it's not clear exactly what that means. I'm Not There, 2007. And finally this week, we continue our series of poetry by John, John Donne with a hymn to God the Father. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which is my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run, and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin by which I have won others to sin, and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear 
that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. Swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore, and having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. John Donne, A Hymn to God the Father Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 27, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.